My next guest is the culture editor for Tribune magazine and author of nine books, someone who is known for their analysis of the various aesthetic forms through which modern power seeks to impress and immortalize itself, most notably through architecture. But without going further, it's my pleasure to have on the podcast Owen Hathley. Owen, how's it going? I'm bad, thank you. So why have you chosen to meet at POS? It's probably the only brutalist building I know of in London with a restaurant. I gathered it wasn't just the food it wasn't that, just that the led food. to the choice. It's a multifunctional community centre that it is. is a quite interesting kind of side, sort of side story of 70s and 60s architecture, which um, ironically you get a lot of in Central and Eastern Europe, despite the fact that this is a, a building opened and run by the diaspora. So I've always kind of found that really interesting, that it feels quite a lot like being in a building in Poland built in the 60s or 70s, while, of course, being built by people who had left Poland decades earlier. Yeah, it feels very much almost like a family home. Yeah. There's, there's a sense of that there's a very deep emotional attachment to everything that's exactly. that decorates but, this building. But with this really interesting combination of sort of like home from home, mm. you know, kitsch, like you get in any sort of diaspora place, like the, just behind you, there's this, you know, giant photo freeze of like the reconstructed Warsaw Old Town. And yet there's all these features that are really quite modern, like loads of avant-garde painting, pop art, you know, the fact that it's in this very sort of ambitious, brutalist building. And yet within that, it's all quite homely mm. and, and cosy and deliberately so. And that, again, is the thing I've always found really fascinating about Central and Eastern European architecture is this kind of fusion of it being quite avant-garde and, and mundane. And I like that a lot. You and I, I think it's fair to say, are sons of the same soil. Um, oh, I? I moved to the port city of Southampton when I was two. Right. You were born there. Yes. How did your upbringing contribute to your direction as a writer? I suppose it can explain to a large degree why I ended up writing about buildings. Because Southampton is, as you know, it's very much not the sort of city that people in Britain are supposed to like aesthetically. You're not supposed to look at Southampton. And I find that that sort of prohibition against sort of, uh, you know, finding anything worth looking at or enjoying or walking through and anything that's not Salisbury or Bath or Great Malvern or whatever, you know, or, or at best like Edinburgh, really sort of boring and stifling. And one of the things that's, that I like about Southampton's townscape at its best is you have this very unsentimental throwing together of the very, very old and the very, very modern. So you have things like the high-rise block at Castle House being like right up against the castle walls. And so you have this kind of thing of like concrete and medieval stone just right up against each other. And I quite like that. I think it's quite a good thing. And then you have these kind of, you know, the cranes in the distance and the estuary and so forth. And it's, there's something kind of romantic about that. Um, and then going back, what was depressing was seeing that the, these new sites kept coming up that were enormously bland. They were made for people to drive in from the N27, go to John Lewis and piss off. That's what they were for. You know, there's an endless succession of shopping malls ended, ending with like West Quay, which when it was built, I think was the second biggest in the country in what is, I think, the 18th biggest city in the country. Yeah, I remember a um, lot of fuss about that as a school yeah, kid. That was a big like, cultural moment in Southampton. <laughs> which says it all. Um, and yet, and it kind of acted as if it didn't have an interesting cultural history when actually it did. Um, the art gallery, you know, being a great example, has this fantastic municipal art collection. And it actually, for a, for a time, particularly in the um, 60s and 70s, had really quite enlightened architectural patronage. You can see this especially at the university, but you can see it in a lot of the council housing and in a lot of the ways that bits of the walls were reconstructed as well. Um, so it seemed to be somewhere that had been culturally quite interesting that had decided that its culture was John Lewis. So a lot of the 
you know, my sort of earlier writing on on architecture and on cities came out of going there and and finding things I liked and finding things I didn't. The day we're recording this, of course, is International Workers' Day. Am I right in thinking your parents met as trade unionists at the, the Labour Party Young Socialists? They did. Yeah, I think that's interesting because even though we come from the same town, my parents met as police officers at the Hampshire Constabulary. <laughs> so quite a gulf ideologically between yes. us in terms of upbringing. But um, to complete the picture for us, could you describe in your words what it is you write about and what it is about buildings in relation mm. to this that obsesses you? In a way, it's, and it is buildings rather than architecture in a way. Mm. It's about townscapes and walking around places and seeing how things fit together and don't. A while ago, I wanted to be an academic. The stuff I was working on was about the Soviet avant-garde and, about the, and, and their ideas. And they have this fantastic concept, which the, the literary critic, uh, Viktor Shklovsky, calls Ostranyanyi, which is the, the, uh, roughly translated as estrangement, which is the sort of idea, he kind of grounds it in a particular scene in Tolstoy where someone, I think, uh, their, their wife has died or something like that, and they're walking around this room that they've walked around a thousand times, and they suddenly see it. They realize they've never looked at it before, that they've just kind of lived through it almost as sort of somnambulist and, and not kind of noticed where they were um, and experienced it fully. And for him, you know, um, what the kind of art that he's arguing for and that the Russian constructivists and futurists and so on were arguing for would be works of art that would make you do this, where you would see where you were suddenly and you would and you could come to an understanding of where you were and seeing it all happening kind of automatically. Which I think is very much how people tend to see themselves in, in capitalist society, is that things just happen organically. They're, they're just there. Um, like they're kind of products of nature rather than... Which, of course, is the exact opposite of what they are. They're, it's a, enormously sort of man-made system. And architecture is a great way to do this. It's a great way to see that kind of estrangement process because of the fact that people go through it as if it's not there. Um, so it's... if you What you want to do, which is very much what I want to do, is get people to see historical processes and get people to see political change as something that happens to them rather than something that's, you know, PPE wankers on the BBC talking incomprehensible nonsense. Um, buildings are a great way to do it because of the fact that partly because people are habituated to do it and partly because it's all around you. So it's incredibly simple. In your average street, you can, just, you, you can play this game. You know, and, and, and on that level, it kind of works... It's kind of fun as an intellectual puzzle in a way. You know, everything can be can be read, um, and it makes quite boring things quite interesting. And it makes quite interesting things boring. And I like to do both. Hi. Hello. Are you ready for the order? Yeah, at uh, Bastrovani to start, mm-hmm. and uh, Van Trubka for main. Mm-hmm. I have the uh, Zupodnia, um, and I have the pierogi. A mix of all three. Yeah, please. Okay. So a book of uh, yours I recently read with great interest is called The Ministry of Nostalgia, published Uh in 2016. Uh Uh It's essentially a book about austerity, isn't it? And its place in the modern British psyche, which gets us off the topic of buildings insofar as it centers on a critique of one very recognizable piece of pop culture, one that I'm sure almost every listener of this podcast will know, that being the Keep Calm and Carry On red poster. In every London flat I've rented since 2013, somebody has hung this bloody thing somewhere <laughs> on a wall. Um, where did you first encounter it, and what pushed you to dissect it? I think a lot came from, God, was it 2008 or nine? There was quite heavy snows in London, and there was a series of tube strikes. And 
you would see this poster on people's windows as the entire like infrastructure of you know one of the richest cities in the world was unable to cope due to some snow and you would see like reading the evening standard and so on listening to people talking about this idea that like you know the blitz spirit would get them through the tube strike they would keep come and carry on through the tube strike and i thought how bizarre that we're comparing snow and industrial action to being bombed by the luftwaffe like what's going on here um what sort of weird national sentimentality would lead to such a a sort of crass and silly comparison and for people to think that comparison is fine and normal and then doing not even doing a huge amount of digging um but just reading a few texts about um british poster design and the ministry of information um found out that it had not actually been produced during the war um and this is where i started to get quite paranoid this was the sort of bit in the investigation where you're going to go, oh my God. Nobody, unless they were working for the Ministry of Information in 1940, can have seen that poster before about 2008. And I find that absolutely, like, mind-boggling. You know, in Generation X by Douglas Copeland, there's all those little potted definitions of various sort of buzzwords and phrases. And one of them is legislated nostalgia, which is to force the body of people to, you know, sort of act as if they have memories that they do not, in fact, possess. And I think that's, you know, you could not find... Thank you. Thank you. A better example of legislated nostalgia than the Keep Coming, Carry On poster. Like, not only did all the people who are putting up on their wall, obviously they're too young to possess this memory, but even people who were in, you know, who, who were around in the 1940s um, could not have possessed this memory unless they were... You know, about 20 people working at Senate House in, 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 in November 1940. So that then led to two different questions, one of which is, why was it not produced at the time? And the second being, why is it so popular now? And the first of them actually connects with a tube strike or snow are like, are like being bombed. And that's the fact that actually at the time, people didn't particularly take well, according to surveys at the time by mass observation, um, did not take to being addressed in this manner. They did not like it. You know, that the Keep Come and Carry On was a part of a series of three. The others were Freedom is in Peril, Defend It With All Your Might. And the other was Your Courage, Your Fortitude, Your... F- I can't remember. I can never remember it. It's a weird collection of... Anyway, mm. there's, there's these three posters. And the, the third one never got produced because the other two had been a massive, had mass, massively unsuccessful. And the other implication that I've come across in some... Uh, work by post historians is that it was specifically for the event of an invasion and the assumed mass panic that would result in the event of an invasion and in the end because of the Battle of Britain for which we also have to thank the uh, Polish aviators I imagine have uh, you know, dined in Posk many a time um, you know the, there was no invasion so um, the, so the poster was superfluous on that level but then there's the why was it then, if it was such a damp squib in 1940, why was it such a massive thing in 2008? And here, if I were conspiracy theory-minded, I would think that Conservative Central Office under Linton Crosby went round the V&A, um, you know, and was like, <laughs> right, this is perfect. Or, well, actually, the, the origin story is so weird. So what actually happened is a consignment of books were sent to Barter Books in Anik in Northumbria, which was um, 
which is a huge second-hand bookshop in a disused railway station. Um, and in amongst all these books was, was, was one of these posters, which they then thought, wow, what an amazing poster. I'd never seen that before, because no one had. And then they um, decided to produce it. And then the V&A spotted this, and the V&A started producing it. So the conspiracy theory is actually that, you know, David Cameron and Gideon and Linton Crosby together, you know, all had their man in the Ministry of Information, found the poster, delivered it to the bookshop, plausible deniability, and then it was the perfect way of selling austerity because it made it sound noble. It made it sound that rather than what was actually happening, which was first an enormous bailout of the banks was happening, which involves a similar level of expenditure to the Second World War being spent on banks. Um, and that then being followed by, you know, cuts to benefits the disabled and lone parents and so forth. That rather than it being this rather sordid thing, mm. um, it was actually like the 1940s, us all getting together in a common cause and all banding together and all kind of, you know, that, that this is literally Cameron's slogan. It's like, we're all in this together. Um, which was an astonishing act of chutzpah, like so many things of Cameron, just like incredible chutzpah. Um, and it worked for a time. Um, I think it worked right up until the 2017 election, you know, which, which went in a very unexpected direction. Okay, the soup of the day. And you've ordered... This is borscht. There's the endless dispute about where borscht is, is from. In this case, it's borscht. It's totally different. Um, well, that's the same. Generally, like, there's a hot dispute between, like, Russia, Ukraine, Lithuania, and Poland about which of them are responsible for the invention of beetroot soup. And I remember when I was having Polish lessons in Warsaw, we were all asked to talk about our favourite foods in Polish. And I mentioned this particular cold soup that has, like, yoghurt in and sort of chives on it. Wonderful thing, especially in hot weather. And she was just like, this is an Eastern soup. And she was from the west of Poland, of Wrocław, and was very kind of like, this is a whole other thing. Very different. Barely yeah. even regarded it as Polish. Right. So, yeah, that's what that is. Why do you think there has been such an uptake for Erzat's post-war spirit? I mean, there's so many, with something as huge as that, there's many different things that are going on at once. And so this is a interpretation of mm. it, which won't apply to everyone and, and everything. Um, but I think it comes from, I suppose, partly a rejection of sort of 60s and 70s youth culture from kind of hippies and punks and acid house and so on, and that kind of familiar narrative, which for people of my age was the sort of cult, the 20th century culture we were all expected to like and find interesting. And that the thing that happened before that was sort of staid and conservative and, and, and sort of tweedy and musty and so on, and had to be blown away by the Beatles, which then had to be blown away by the Sex Pistols, which had to be blown away by techno and whatever. Um, and that actually, in a society where the values of that time, the particular small C conservatism of that time and the stability of that time and also the equality of that time, you know, it being when the National Health Service, you know, universal welfare state, mass council housing and full employment and so on, when, when these things were, were, were created, you, can, you simply can't think about those things in the same way in a society where you no longer have those things. And of that list, the only one that we really have at all is the National Health Service um, because it's electoral suicides to dismantle it. Every other thing has been fundamentally destroyed. 
So looking at that period and, you know, caused a certain amount of of longing, I think, among people of, of who, who, who are in many cases younger than me. But it can... What is so interesting about austerity and nostalgia is the thing, is that it can flip left and it can flip right. Um, and I tried to talk about both in the book. Um, that I think both the appeal of Boris Johnson and the appeal of Jeremy Corbyn can be explained by this sort of sense that, you know, a sort of wrong turning was taken at some point in the 70s, um, away from, you know, the the 40s, whether seen on the left as a welfare state or seen in the 40s as, you know, imperial bombast. Um, And a wrong turning was taken into this much more ruthless, cruel society. Um, I think that's broadly true in many respects as well. I don't think it's a completely inaccurate interpretation of history. I think it leaves out a lot, but it's not totally wrong. I can see how um, Jeremy Corbyn appeals in this sense, but mm. how does how does Boris Johnson appeal in the well, same... Because he's sort of Winston Churchill for people that watch Have I Got News For You. Yeah, I suspected that's what you meant, but I just wanted mm. to press you on that. Um, his whole shtick is sort of being Churchillian and the way that Churchill was, you know, full of, like, crap jokes. You know, it's very much like, that mm. the way that Boris is full of crap jokes and that particular insufferable sort of Oxford debating society idea of wit um, that they both very much share. Um, of course, Churchill was immeasurably more serious as a politician. Um, shady as fuck, but, you know, serious. Um, and Boris is, um, you know, clearly driven by... You know, he's probably much more comparable to a sort of celebrity figure, to some, or comparable to someone like Trump. You know, he's mm. a very, very postmodern politician yeah. with no real, you know, with, with, without any obvious sort of stable principles of any kind. I but, think that's why he's latched on to Brexit, isn't it? Because yes. it's the most serious thing that ever happened to him. Well, he's not, I mean, but, I mean he, you know, he latched onto it very much at the last minute, I think, when he saw it would help his image as, you know, uh, as a sort of comedy Churchill, mm. um, that the comedy Churchill should be Brexit, right? I mean, even though actually the actual Churchill was very much in favour of uh, the creation of European Union, although on on fairly anti-communist grounds, it wasn't because he was some sort of wonderful believer in internationalism, but he was certainly in favour of a federal Europe, mm. Churchill. Um, so he's a weird Brexit hero, but it's because of the fact that everyone's Churchill is Churchill in 1940 going, you know, we stand alone. And again, there's an extra, aside before one even talks about the fact that they weren't actually standing alone. They had you know the armies of you know India and Africa and so forth standing behind them, and of Canada and Australia and New Zealand. They also, you know, that that, that, that there's a truth in it. You know, they were alone in Europe, um, particularly at that point when Stalin was you know still sending oil over to Hitler. Um, but that wasn't chosen. You know, mm. <laughs> there's a big difference between like voting to leave and and it sounds an obvious and banal thing to say but they act as if it's not it is different to vote to leave a trading block in the 21st century than it is to be the only country in Europe not to have been overrun by the Third Reich what are you drinking uh, uh, by the way what is this this, this is a sort of, of this is a herbal vodka um, which literally speaking means bitter stomach vodka is it medicinal um, in theory. I mean, like all of those things, it's quackery, but I like it. Oh, I should order it. 
I want to go back to what you said earlier about uh, David Cameron's loose iteration of that familial narrative. Mm. We're all in this together. Mm. There's a chapter in the book that deals with the myth of the British family, going back to Orwell's famous line about the old and silly being in control of the British purse strings in particular. Why is it that this has become, do you think, such a fixture in our culture, despite the fact that it's demonstratively disliked? I don't think it is disliked. I think to understand a lot of a lot of Brexit, I think one has to get a psychoanalyst on the case m- more than a historian, mm. and I'm not. I'm not either. Um, it's there's profound sadomasochism in the British middle classes, I think, and Brexit plays that. Thatcher plays that. What's that astonishing Thatcher line? The smack of firm government. Like, what sort of a fucking country would vote in someone that says, I'm going to give you the smack of firm government? Only this one. Like, uh, a, a country that harboured secret sexual feelings towards Maggie Thatcher. Well, precisely, obviously. precisely. And Theresa, As we did yeah. the Queen in the 60s. Yeah. And Theresa May was clearly trying to do the same thing. And she was, and in the end, she couldn't do it. Like, she's a sort of, in the same way that, you know, that sort of Boris appears as a sort of postmodern Churchill. She's sort of. If Thatcher wasn't already postmodern, and she she is that, you know, Thatcher had that glint in her eye of like total fanaticism and conviction, knew exactly what she was doing. Mm. Um, May wants to be like that, but doesn't have the charisma, doesn't have the personality. But initially, that's how she was sold. That yeah. cover, May with her bobbed hair, glaring at the camera, and crush the saboteurs. That's that's people getting off on that, you know. And 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 then when she was on telly. She couldn't sustain that. That's you know, right. She was asked, what is the most rebellious thing you've ever done? And mm, I think they were trying mm. to elicit that sort of response that yeah. would cause that, again, that excitement. They were the eccentric shoes, which I think were <laughs> partly fetishized for a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, so there was all that. Yeah, and I think it's largely localized to the middle class, but it, it feeds out outside of it, I think. There is an irony, isn't there, in that the book came out just as the British people ceased to keep calm and carry on and instead yeah. went mad and broke things. It, I made one small change in during the proofs um, to get Corbyn in there mm. because there's a bit in there about the Finsbury Health Centre and when the Finsbury Health Centre was going to be closed down, Corbyn as one of the local MPs you know, went down to the picket and whatnot to defend it. And I was like, oh, I'll stick that in now that he's Labour leader. That's a nice touch. But I couldn't, we didn't have room to put his election in there because I've had to write an entire new section. And then, you know, a few months after that, the vote, you know, the, the referendum comes and I was just... I'd, which you know, I don't think it disproves anything I said, but it was frightening to be have it confirmed so obviously. I think the whole point of austerity nostalgia is that it's not just a red poster we're talking about. It's an entire industry. There's even a mobile app, ration book, isn't there? <laughs> there is. Um, well, I guess, I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier about people that didn't, that have never lived in a welfare state, liking the idea of one, liking the idea of there being a ministry of food that has their best interests at heart. Wouldn't it be nice to live in a society that was restrained and egalitarian and, and unfair? But also a lot of it's just fashion. And not, not that fashion is just fashion, but, you know, that fashion is endlessly cyclical. And in something like architecture, you can see this so well that even that every single period, no matter how loathed it was at the time, always comes back. I mean, at the moment, like the late 80s and sort of postmodernism are like coming back in the architecture schools. And being born in 1981, this is the architecture I most despise. Um, Why is that? You've seen the De Vere Hotel, right? Oh, in Southampton? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I have my school prom there. Yeah, exactly. You you know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know 
that Southampton was held under a brief RAF military dictatorship after the Blitz. And even during such a bleak period, the then King George VI uh, saw it fit to regale its residents with a royal visit. A magisterial Uh, uh. command to keep calm and carry on was surely never so tone deaf as then. Yeah, exactly. And And I think that's... Tom Harrison from Last Observation writes this book in the 80s called Living Through the Blitz. One of the things he, you know, he finds out from this is that people were pissed off. You know, they didn't kind of keep coming and carry on during the Blitz. Um, so who was so, heading up this dictatorship? Um, I can't remember. When did it disband? I couldn't tell. Oh, it literally lasts about a week. And so when the, when the king comes there, there's, there's this line in Mass Observation somewhere about like, well, I suppose it's nice that he came, but I'd rather have had a house. That's not said in a Southampton accent. It'd be nice that he came, but he could have had a house. Yes. Um, you know, like, it took a long time for them to get their houses. Am I right in thinking you're a communist? Broadly speaking. How do you define that position today? <laughs> in terms of, sort of day-to-day politics, I'm probably more a social democrat, to be honest. But in terms of ultimate politics, I don't consider that capitalism is in the long run a viable system i don't think for instance capitalism is capable of coping with climate change um capitalism is so intrinsically based on growth and growth at all costs and growth is the measure of everything that i just don't think you could possibly have uh, you know a capitalist society cope with this as a, as a very obvious example um and so ultimately i do think you would have to have a society run on communist grounds which does eliminate private ownership of anything substantial you know land and real estate and industry and so forth i think those things should absolutely be taken permanently out of private ownership because i think that otherwise it's going to lead us to the breakdown of human society as we know it um so on that level i am a communist your latest book with the rather bombastic title, The Adventures of <laughs> Owen Hathaway in the Post-Soviet Space, isn't one I've had the pleasure of reading yet. Uh, could you introduce this latest edition to listeners out there? Sure. There I was sort of interested really in the story of, of nationalism in, in the USSR and what it meant to have a country that didn't tell you what it was in its name geographically and in terms of its nation. And I think it's unique in history in that, you know, that maybe... Um, the United States of America, even that says it's in America. You know, the, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics told you that it was a union, that it was based on Soviet i.e. councils, and that it was socialist and that it had republics in it. It didn't tell you what language it spoke, it didn't tell you what ethnicity it was, it didn't tell you where it was. And that's deeply odd and unusual historically. And so I wanted to understand how this thing worked and how this kind of multinational thing, um, which you can see in a way as a sort of, it's the thing that, people that hate the European Union imagine that the European Union is, right? You know, that it's sort of um, a sort of transnational body that suppresses um, national individuality and locality in favour of some sort of centre, which is Moscow or Brussels. And it was really interesting to find out that, in a way, what the USSR was doing in those countries was producing the nationalism as much as it was suppressing it. So that's what it's about. Owen Hathley, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.